Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, environmental journalist Ben Goldfarb reveals that our modern idea of what a healthy landscape looks like and how it functions is wrong, distorted by the fur trade that once trapped out millions of beavers from North America's lakes and rivers. The consequences of losing beavers were profound. Streams eroded, wetlands dried up, and species from salmon to swans lost vital habitat. Today, a growing coalition of beaver believers, including scientists, ranchers, and passionate citizens, recognizes that ecosystems with beavers are far healthier for humans and non-humans alike than those without them. And this conversation with Ben Coldfarb was first broadcast in 2018. And Ben Goldfarb, you were telling me before we went on the air, you you live in Spokane these days. I do live in Spokane. Yeah, pre- a pretty beavery place. You know, we've got we've got uh, beavers all up and down the Spokane River. All right, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in New York. New York. Okay. Yeah. All right. So lived, now, lived out west for a while. Now, now, now this is a Western prejudice, so uh, <laughs> it, it, you wouldn't obviously get into nature in New York, but I guess it depends on where you. Yeah, you know, we, you we have right up up in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains, we've got some of some of the country's most uh, robust beaver populations as well as black bears and coyotes and you name it. You know, New York is much wilder than I think most people give it credit for. Yeah, yeah, and especially out west we have this, you know, the, like I said, it's stereotype probably of, of back east. So, uh, tell me how you how you got into beavers, how you became, I guess you call yourself beaver believers. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah. So, you know, I think like most people who spend a lot of time Hiking and camping and fishing, uh, you know, I'd certainly had had some beaver encounters and always had a kind of a baseline appreciation for these these very nifty animals. Uh, but I didn't quite understand beavers as these, these world changing forces of nature uh, until a few years ago. I was I was at a conference in in Seattle, a beaver conference, uh, and uh, you know the biologists there uh, were just they just created this this portrait of beavers as, as these amazing landscape-scale architects uh, capable of, of storing immense amounts of water behind their dams and engineering incredible quantities of wildlife habitat and it was really it was really spending time with you know, with these these scientists who have studied beavers all their lives uh, that that helped me realize just how profoundly important these animals really are I love to see in the book you're scribbling on napkins because you forgot to bring your notebook, I guess. Right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> everybody okay. in the room is fitting the stereotype that we're wearing flannel. Uh, you, you paint the picture very well. Uh, I want to, before we get to the beavers, I want to, uh, I want to paint the picture of the humans. So this group of beaver believers uh, includes not only scientists, but hairdressers and yeah, and, and uh, real estate agents and, and uh, you know, and former uh, physician's assistants. I mean, it's one of the amazing things about beavers, I think, is, you know, the way that the way they just have this ability to sort of drag people into their orbit. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, in part because they're such visible forces on the landscape, you know, they're they're really fun and interesting animals to interact with. You know, you can you can visit a beaver colony and and think about them and study them in this really compelling way that that's hard to hard to achieve with other species because other species just don't have the same highly visible impact that beavers do. So so it's just fascinating to me how all of these people from very disparate walks of lives um, have have kind of become beaver believers and have devoted their 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 lives to promoting the conservation and restoration of this animal. It's pretty cool. 
You quote one lady in the book who became a beaver believer, and then her family, she jokes, uh, thinks she's going through a midlife crisis. Why, why are <laughs> right, you totally exactly. into beavers? Yeah. <laughs> they, they tell me. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's um, that's Sharna Gilmore, who's she's a former real estate agent uh, up in up in California, and she's another person who who sort of succumbed uh, to the the incredibly compelling beaver story. Uh, so, in brief, and we'll get into this, of course, in depth and during the hour. Uh, why beavers? As you as you write in the book. Uh, there might be a group of weasel believers out there, but you, you haven't heard of them. You don't. You doubt it, right? Yeah. If, if there, what, if there are any out there, they, they can call into this show. I'd be, I'd be curious. <laughs> well, pit with the beaver believers against the weasel believers. What is it about beavers? Yeah, you know, they're. I mean, they're truly unique in their in their landscape architecture and engineering, right? I mean, there's there's really no other animal that does what beavers do. Of course, they they build dams, uh, they create these these incredible ponds and wetlands. They're they're holding back enormous volumes of water uh, behind their dams, and they're basically just engineering these habitats. You know, beavers are what scientists call a keystone species. Uh, so just as in architecture, you know, the keystone is kind of the block at the top of a stone arch that holds up the entire ecosystem. Beavers are also, by engineering these watery habitats that are so important to life in the West, they're also supporting these vast ecosystems as well. You know, you've got, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to name a species that doesn't benefit from beavers in in some way, you know, you've got uh, the waterfowl that nest and forage in, in beaver ponds. You've got the amphibians that breed there. You know, you've got the juvenile trout and salmon that uh, that rely on those slow water habitats for for refuge. You know, the the number of creatures that fall under the beaver umbrella is just so vast, and and beavers are really unique in that way. Uh, so let's pause here to describe the beaver. Of course, we all have a vague idea. It's, you know, it's a furry animal with the Prominent teeth and the and the and the big tail. Right, uh, beaver is a rodent. Yeah, they're they're uh, North America's largest rodent. I think they're bigger than most people uh, expect. You know, I, I mean, a, a, a large adult beaver is you know sixty five pounds or so. Uh, even you know a mid sized one is forty to fifty pounds. So you know as big as as big as many dogs. Uh, you know, I think that we see them. We usually see them swimming half submerged, so we don't quite realize how how hefty they are. But they're pretty uh, pretty dense balls of fur and fat and muscle. Well, I had this question. I felt a little foolish, but but I'll but I, I I'm guessing part of our audience has this question too. Are beavers dangerous in any way? Will they attack you with their big teeth? I'd <laughs> yeah, generally not. They're usually pretty pretty shy and retiring. They'll usually you know slap their tail and swim off if you startle them. But there is there is one uh, known. Beaver caused human fatality, which was a fisherman in, in Belarus who tried to take a selfie with a beaver, and the beaver uh, bit him in the thigh and severed an artery. So no no beaver selfies, I think, is a okay. pretty good rule of thumb. All right. Dude. Keep a bit of distance. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, because as you write in the book, uh, you know, beaver, people who do beaver relocation, uh, you know, you'd obviously have to pick up the beaver and... Yeah, there are, there are people handling beavers for sure, but you know, but I think that most of the people who do who who uh, you know who do that for for a living take take pretty good precautions. You know, they mm-hmm. keep them in uh, you know in a in a, a sack or a trap uh, generally, so they're not uh, you know they're not doing too much beaver cuddling ideally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you say that beavers are located at a junction point uh, for ecological development. They 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 affect many other species. One of those is the trumpeter swan. Right. And, and so you talk with a gentleman up in Jackson Hole area 
his focus is on the swans, but to get a higher swan population, you need to increase the beaver population. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, and the, and the reason for that is that is that swans prefer to nest on islands. Essentially, you know, they they like these they like these platforms out in the middle of the water because that's where you can you know raise your chicks uh, safe from from predators like foxes and coyotes. So, you know, what's a what's a perfect swan nesting platform? Well, I mean, a, a, an island beaver lodge uh, really is a good is a good nesting area. Uh, at, plus, beavers are also creating these ponds that that uh, that grow the, the aquatic vegetation that that swans need to feed. Uh, so so beavers are really engineering this fantastic swan habitat. And that's just one of the many species that uh, are really benefiting from these these incredible animals. Mm-hmm. In the book, uh, you paint a vivid picture of uh, life before humans, and when the beavers, I guess, ruled North America. <laughs> uh, in, in a way, I wonder if you could do that for us. Uh, that were, you know, the the I guess many many wetlands. You know, I, I don't know what the beaver population was, but uh, in the millions. Yeah, in the, in the probably in the hundreds of millions. Uh, you know, we don't have a great historic beaver population estimate, but you know, four hundred million is is what one naturalist has has thrown out. Uh, and you know, and those and all of those beavers would have engineered hundreds of millions of acres of pond and wetland habitat. You know, there's no question that that North America was once much wetter and lusher and more pond and wetland covered than it is today. You know, you read these old trappers and explorers journals, you know, and, and I mean, one explorer uh, describes crossing the state of Indiana, uh, which today is, you know, is cornfields, and uh, couldn't find a dry place to camp for 100 miles because beavers had so thoroughly marshed it up. You know, it's, I mean, I think that a lot of the, the places that we consider desert today, including the Southwest, uh, were, were much wetter and lusher, and that was in large measure thanks to beavers. Hmm. Uh, so uh, many areas, uh, for example, streams, uh, you're used to standing on rocks, right? Right. Pebbles, sand. Uh, what would you be experiencing uh, with more beavers? Yeah, you know, I think I think that a, a lot of a lot of people have have this conception of a stream um, as this, you know, as this kind of single thread. Uh, straight line moving through the landscape with a, a, a rocky bottom and, and, you know, cold, clear, free-flowing, fast-moving water. Uh, and, you know, certainly some streams would have looked like that. But I think that in many places, you know, these beaver impoundments were much more the the rule than the exception, you know. So instead of that clear, fast, free-flowing stream, you would have seen, you know, these slow, murky, backed-up swamps and and you know you would have seen much more complex habitat in a lot of ways you know many different channels created by beavers moving across the landscape you know these really wet inundated floodplains uh, I think we would have we would have seen less less free-flowing streams and and more sort of slow moving backed up multi-channel marsh type habitats or wetland habitats uh, of course I, you know some people, Maybe prefer the cool, cool, uh, you know, fast-flowing stream. Sure. You know, um, in the book you say, we humans are fanatical over-micromanagers of the natural world. Right. You know, we, we um, you know, we love to develop 
in the exact same place, places that, that beavers call habitat, right? Both our species, we love these low gradient valley bottoms with really fertile floodplains. You know, that's where we, we built our roads and our farms and our towns and our, you know, our, our, our subdivisions uh, is in exactly the same places that beavers love to engineer. So, you know, it's no wonder that, that beaver and human conflicts are, are a pretty frequent occurrence in many places. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess going against that that regimentation that I, I think we we like as humans, uh, beaver habitat in all, all its glory can seem pretty chaotic. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, you you walk into a, a beaver impoundment, you know, and there are dead and dying trees everywhere. You know, the 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 ground is is pretty spongy and soft, and there are, you know there are there are side channels and and uh, offshoots you know branching off everywhere. Right, it's this very wet, complex ecosystem that um, you know doesn't conform to our sort of traditional standards of of, uh, of natural beauty. You know, you're not going to open up uh, you know feel a copy of Field and Stream magazine and you know and see a you know see a crazy beaver wetland in it. You know, you're going to see that that straight single thread stream. Uh, but you know, again, I mean, this those these kinds of complex habitats are so important because there are just so many different niches in them, right? I mean, those you know those dead trees are fantastic habitat for for woodpeckers you know those all those all of those little shallow side channels you know are, are wonderful uh, boreal toad breeding areas you know there's just that those kinds of complex habitats may not cohere with our conception of what a stream should look like uh, but for for so many species they're incredibly vital uh, you quote uh, Norman McLean river runs through it right uh, which which you know I guess maybe from the movie which from reading the books or the book, um, I associate Norman McLean with that clear, fast-running stream. Yeah. Tell us about his comment about the uh, beaver habitat. Right, yeah, he's got he's got a great uh, a great line and a river runs through it, uh, you know, where the the brothers and some of uh, some of their their friends and family are going fishing and you know, one of one of the guys uh, goes off to to uh, to fish in a, a beaver area and and uh, describes, you know, falling through these loose piles of sticks and ending up with a kind of a wreath of seaweed around his neck and coming home with a basket full of fish, you know. I think and I think that captures the kind of the the challenges and and joys of fishing in beaver ponds pretty well you know I, I do a lot of fly fishing myself and um you know beaver ponds they're they're tough places to fish a lot of the time right the vegetation is pretty dense uh you know the the water the, I mean, the, the ground is kind of it's pretty sludgy right there's lots of sediment accumulated at the bottom of the pond so you end up you know sinking sinking in up to your your shins so you know they're not um you know they're they're tough places to fish but again i mean those you know those those Deep, cold ponds that beavers create are, are fantastic fish refuges, and uh, you know certainly the number of fishermen I've talked to who, who you know recall growing up fishing in their their beaver pond, and you know that's where they caught the, the biggest trout. Uh, you know everybody has that kind of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, beaver behavior, uh, beaver biology. And we'll talk about uh, the effects. I want to hear about this. Uh, you, you call them the Swiss Army knife of the ecological world. Uh, you talk about, uh, you know, if you have floods, if you uh, are concerned about water quality, uh, if you want more water for agriculture, uh, perhaps you're concerned about wildfire. I want to 
when he, you know, we've had these devastating wildfires in uh, California. I want to hear about all of that um, and more. The book is Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. More following this break. When overseeding or introducing new grass seed into an existing lawn, following the proper steps will ensure your success. First, mow the lawn short by dropping the mower deck to about one and a half inches. If possible, core aerate your turf to introduce holes in the turf where the new seed can take hold and germinate. Next, broadcast your desired seed blend over the entire lawn. After applying the grass seed, rake the turf lightly with a leaf rake to encourage the seed to make contact with the soil. Continue to follow your usual watering schedule to maintain correct soil moisture for the existing turf, but then make sure to adjust your sprinklers to water every day for 5 to 10 minutes on the off days. This will keep the new seed moist and you should see new grass germinating in 10 to 14 days. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about beavers today. But wonder, well, that's a kind of a narrow topic, isn't it? Spending a whole hour on beavers? What's up? Uh, the book is Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Uh, so let me push off be- uh, beaver biology. I want to tackle this question uh, head on here. Uh, so you um, you do a pretty good sales job here. You you're, you describe yourself as a uh, beaver believer yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, so beavers are the environmental Swiss army knives capable of tackling just about any ecological dilemma. This is quoting Ben Goldfarb, my guest. Trying to slow down floods or filter out pollution? There's a beaver for that. Hoping to capture more water for agriculture in the face of climate change? Add a beaver. Concerned about erosion, salmon runs, or wildfire? Take two beaver families and check back in a year. And uh, someone listening to that might say, are you overselling this? So I wonder, <laughs> maybe you can uh, counter that. What uh, Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I've, I've definitely had the that accusation leveled at me. Um, but, you know, I think that all of all of those claims are, are heavily backed up by by peer-reviewed research, uh, you know, I mean, take take one of those claims that beavers are, are, are good at filtering out pollution. You know, we know we know that these these beaver ponds and wetlands by slowing down uh, the flow of water basically cause sediment uh, to, to settle out. And as, as that sediment settles out, it's all, you know, you're also settling out nitrogen and phosphorus and, you know, all of all of these sort of you know, fertilizer, uh, these, these, you know, these, these chemical fertilizers that, you know, that, that are sprayed in our fields and end up, you know, in our, in our watersheds and, and can be very deleterious, uh, you know, we're basically causing that pollution to settle out. And there have been lots of studies showing that, you know, that, that beavers are these fantastic capturers uh, of nitrates and phosphorus and, and thus uh, improve, improve downstream water quality. Uh, you know, the notion that beavers are, are good at capturing water for agriculture, you know, that's been, that's been shown many times as well, right, that by slow Slowing down uh, the flow of water, you know, you're you're ensuring that there's still water in streams and rivers and irrigation ditches uh, into the into the the summer and fall into the hot season. You know, you often hear about farmers and ranchers complaining that beavers are stealing their water, but beavers aren't stealing the water; they're just slowing that water down. And uh, again, they're just they're basically prolonging uh, the the duration of time in which that water is available to users. Uh, so, you know, all of all of these 
these claims about about beavers sort of uh, about all of their benefits. Um, you know, when I started reporting the book, I, I also thought that that stuff was overblown. But then you you know then you read the the peer reviewed published science, and it's it's clear that these are incredibly valuable, useful animals. Mm. Uh, what about wildfires? Of course, you know, much in our minds, uh, the, the wildfire season this year seems to get longer and longer. It seems to be almost year-round, at, at least in California these days. Uh, what about how do beavers affect wildfires? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and that's you know, and that and that is one topic that I, I think that the science is just beginning to catch up. But you know, anecdotally, uh, it's it's incredibly powerful. You know, I, I saw I saw pictures recently taken by Joe Wheaton, who's a, a scientist here at, uh, at at Utah State University, and you know, he's gone out to fires, and uh, the pictures are incredible because you you see that you know the 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 hill slopes are just completely blackened, uh, and the only green, lush, wet place on the landscape is is the incredibly beaver-influenced valley bottom. You know, it's the pictures are amazing because you just see, you know, again, black on the hillsides and green where beavers have remained. So that's, so the idea there is that, you know, is that beavers are creating these fantastic fire refugia or fire breaks uh, that are slowing the spread of wildfire. And, you know, there are places in, in Washington where I live where you can see very clearly that, you know, one side of a, of a, a valley is black and, uh, and then the other side is green. And the reason, again, is that beavers basically prevented that, that, wildfire from spreading from one hill slope to the other by creating this wet, lush fire break. Mm. Another benefit I wouldn't have thought of, you mentioned uh, the areas where beavers are, um, the aquifers get filled faster. Yeah, absolutely. Beavers definitely raise groundwater tables. And the reason for that, you know, is when you look at a, a beaver pond, of course, there's all of the visible surface water you can see. But what you don't see is the, the weight of that pond, uh, you know, sort of forcing water into the ground, you know, as, as water spreads out onto the floodplain, you know, it's infiltrating the soil and it's just it's raising that water table, you know, it's saturating the earth. Uh, and of course, that's that's really good for vegetation production. You know, we know that in places that have beavers, uh, you know, we, we just get so so much more willow and, and aspen and cottonwood and grass production um, because beavers are basically acting as, as irrigators, you know, and there are lots of ranchers uh, who, for that reason, have embraced beavers because beavers are actually increasing the forage for their cattle by, by sub-irrigating these meadows. Mm. And this isn't only in North America, right? You've, you, you went to England and Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So there's there there are two species of beavers in the world. There's there's Castor canadensis, which is the North American beaver, and then there's Castor fiber, which is the Eurasian beaver. Uh, and you know they're they're very similar species. They have the same the same landscape impacts. Uh, and you know in there beavers were, beavers were trapped out of of, uh, of the UK uh, hundreds of years ago. They've been they they had been gone for from Britain since the 1700s, and uh, they've recently been been reintroduced. And there they're having incredible benefits. You know the big the big problem. There, one of the big problems there is flooding. Right, it's a very rainy place, and there are these, you know, big destructive floods that that you know sweep through uh, farmland every every winter in Britain. And and what what scientists have found there is that by basically slowing down that water, uh, beavers can can have real flood mitigation benefits. You know, one one study basically found that you know you get a big sort of pulse of of storm water uh, rushing downstream, and it hits a, a beaver pond and wetland complex and all of that all of that stormwater 
slows down, it spreads out, it sinks into the earth. It's basically being dissipated by the beavers. Uh, and, you know, and 30% of that water is just vanishing into the beaver complex, uh, which, you know, is a big deal, of course, for, for people downstream who are worried about flooding. So that's, that's kind of a, a cool thing about beavers is that not only, you know, here in the, here in, in the American West, uh, they're these great fighters of drought. Uh, and there, in, you know, in, in the rainy UK, uh, they're actually fantastic mitigators of the opposite problem of flooding. Hmm. I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, Susie Creek. Um, you have uh, three pictures in the book. Uh, Susie Creek at three different snapshots. So first tell us, apparently Susie Creek is a famous example of uh, degradation of a repairing area. Right? Yeah, Susie Creek, is that's that's one of the sites that all, all of the beaver believers love to talk about. So that's a, that's in, in northeast Nevada in, in Elko County. Uh, and, you know, the story the story there is, is pretty simple. It's a story that's very common throughout the American West, right, is, is you know, you basically get many decades of, of over of overgrazing of unmanaged grazing you know of, of of ranchers basically turning the turning the cows out into the stream bottom the cows you know eat eat all of the riparian vegetation the stream banks destabilize and you end up with this sort of eroded uh gully essentially that you know that can't support a, a whole lot of life and and ends up uh, going dry in the summer very degraded very degraded system and that you know that sort of thing has happened on on hundreds of thousands of stream miles uh all over the american west so the story there was you know was, was pretty straightforward i mean in in the in the 1990s, um, the Bureau of Land Management and the the ranchers who grazed that area basically agreed to you know some pretty simple uh, grazing prescriptions. You know they fenced off some parts of the creek. They agreed to uh, you know keep the cows out of the stream in the summer when plants are especially vulnerable to to grazing. Uh, and thanks to those those very straightforward prescriptions, uh, you know vegetation started to regrow. They got cattails and and willows coming back, and beavers as they do, uh, appeared almost by, by magic to, to, to uh, utilize that, that, that vegetation. Uh, and thanks to those beavers um, and, you know, and that managed grazing prescription, uh, you know, what had been this, this kind of dry, degraded gully uh, turned into this sort of spectacular cattail marsh that was, that was wonderful habitat and was also fantastic for the ranchers too. You know, the, the kind of the amazing upshot was that, you know, the ranchers in that, in that area were initially skeptical of beavers. You know, I think that agricultural folks tend to be skeptical of beavers. Uh, but what they saw was that beavers actually created these incredible water sources for their, for their cattle, you know, and that, and that in the, when, when drought struck Northeast Nevada in, in 2012 or so, you know, all, all of their, all of their neighbors had to pull their cattle off the range or truck water to their cattle um, and the guys who had beavers could keep their keep their their cows out there because they you know they had these these rodents creating this fantastic water source so that's a pretty cool story I think uh, just one more I want to get into beaver politics but uh, one more data point here um, and uh, you know we're with our audience we're probably you know preaching to the choir here but uh, I, I do want to get into the politics but uh, this statistic, uh, is I think this is is this the Western U.S. Anyway, I'll I'll ask you about this. So uh, wetlands comprise two percent of the land area, and eighty percent of biodiversity. Right. Yeah, and that's and to me that's that's very telling. You know, we I mean we know that that in in arid places water is life, right? And and that any any force capable of creating water, uh, or storing water, or spreading water out is is immensely valuable. Uh, so you know we know we know that all kinds of creatures are congregating to these these beaver created areas and and uh, you know wetland restoration from a a biodiversity or conservation standpoint is one of the most important things we can do.
so uh, it takes you talked about ranchers, and the ranchers are kind of often at the nexus point, right, to these politics. You talk about wolves in the book, so well, I want to talk about that as well. Uh, but uh, beaver politics, uh, the I guess areas, you know, manicured areas, controlled areas. Uh, people there would not want beavers, right? You talk about Jackson Hole. People don't want beavers on their property. Right. Uh, they they want it a certain way, even though that's one of the attractions of living there, I would, I would imagine. Sure. Right, to the, the beautiful uh, uh, system. That's why the guy you talk to is relocating beavers. Exactly, yeah. So what? where are the conflict points? Yeah, then? so, you know, I'm, I'm, def- I'm I mean, as, as, as uh, passionate a be- uh, beaver believer as I am, uh, you know, I'm certainly not naive about what a, what a pain in the butt these animals can be. Um, you know, conflict points, I mean, one of the most common conflicts is, is road culverts, right? You, you know, you get a beaver swimming along, looking for a place to live, and, you know, the roadbed to a beaver looks like the world's greatest dam, and the, the culvert is the, the leak in the dam, right? So beavers are always trying to plug up road culverts, uh, which often leads to, to roads being washed out. That's a, you know, a very a very common beaver conflict. Uh, of course, you've got them, you know, cutting down, you know, people's ornamental trees or, or orchards. That's a, you know, a pretty a pretty typical one as well. Uh, you know, flooding people's property. So there, you know, there are all kinds of of, uh, of issues that that beavers can cause for sure. Uh, and you know, the way that those kinds of problems are, are usually handled is by by trapping out the offending beaver, um, which you know seems to which makes a certain intuitive logic, uh, but is also problematic in that you know when you re- when you remove beavers from a, a road culvert, for example, you know you're just you're just creating a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, trapping, even though you know it can, it can solve a problem temporarily, uh, in the long term you just end up in this sort of endless cycle of, of trapping and recolonization. Um, tell me about, uh, you said, I think you were either visiting or living in Paonia, yep. Colorado. Right. Tell me that story. You were you and your partner would take walks along the the irrigation canal. Yeah, exactly. And irrigation dish. Tell me that. Yeah, yeah, that was right. So we we're living living in Colorado, and uh, yeah, my my then girlfriend, now now wife, and I would would go on these long romantic uh, sunset walks on along the you know along the irrigation ditches, and and uh, you know there there was a a beaver or two in the in the ditch, and and uh, you know we saw that beaver uh, every every night for a couple of months, and, and you know and then and then one day the uh, the ditch rider showed up with a shotgun and you know took took the beaver out, and I think that's a that's a very con- very common conflict as well as you know is the, is irrigation ditches, you know again for I mean for a beaver, you know an irrigation ditch is is the sort of narrow, free-flowing habitat that they're looking to dam. Uh, so certainly you get lots of lots of dams and irrigation ditches, and, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's probably at the heart of, of farmers and ranchers' antipathy toward beavers is, is that, that irrigation ditch conflict. Mm-hmm. I want to get into this question. The key question is, can we coexist? And uh, starting with... Uh, I've been referring to him as that guy, uh, Drew Reed. I'll give him the name here. This is again yeah. Jackson Hole. So he he relocates. He he humanely traps and relocates a beaver. Can that be done on a on a large scale? Is that possible? It it is possible for sure. You know, and there are, I mean there are beaver relocation projects all over all over the West that have that have moved hundreds and hundreds of beavers. You know, Drew Drew I think has moved uh, close to three hundred now. Um, so you know that's there, certainly that's that's one option. But uh, you know, it's I mean to me um, almost better than relocating them is is taking steps that allow them to remain in place. You know, I think that's a that's a 
a really important thing um, is, is sort of non-lethal conflict solving at the site, right? Because again, if you, if you trap and relocate the beavers, you're just opening up that habitat for the next family of beavers. So, you know, the solution that, that I talk a lot about in the book is this thing called a flow device, uh, which is basically this system of, of pipes and fences. Um, you know, you pass the pipe through the beaver dam or through the road culvert. You know, the fences at the ends of the pipe basically prevent the beavers from plugging up the pipe. Uh, and, you know, and that's a great way of sort of regulating the height of the pond. So you can say, you know, hey, I like having the beavers here. I appreciate all the great stuff they do for the environment. But, you know, I don't want my my driveway underwater. And you can install one of these flow devices to basically regulate the height of that beaver pond to a level that's acceptable to both humans and, and animals. So, you know, many thousands of these these devices have been installed all over the country. And, uh, you know, one researcher found that they're they're effective 85 to 95 percent of the time. So that's a, that's a great way of solving these beaver conflicts and letting that beaver family stay put, do its thing, create some great uh, ecosystem benefits. And, of course, um, part of the attractiveness of studying beavers is that this is they're representative of other species, right, as well. So when I ask the question, can we coexist with beavers, that's really a question about can we coexist with many other species. Yeah, I think I think that's true, you know, and I think I think that um, you know, the, I mean, the, the species that that beavers most remind me of in some ways is, is coyotes. Uh, you know, I mean, coyotes we know are are playing these incredibly important roles in ecosystems, right? They're you know they're controlling uh, rodent populations in a, a really important way, um, but you know they also they also cause issues, uh, and you know we tend to respond to those issues by killing the offending animals, uh, and you know and and we know um, thanks to you know many years of peer reviewed science that killing coyotes is often ineffective you know that it doesn't it doesn't reduce you know predation on on livestock and and uh, it can have really negative impacts in terms of sort of releasing rodent populations um, so to me you know beavers and coyotes share a, share a lot of sort of cultural DNA and that they're both these kind of problematic animals um, that that we have to learn to live with uh, in in more ecologically sensitive and sound ways. Uh, follow-up question. I, I mean, we. This is a kind of a silly question, uh, but why do we have to? You know, we get, You know, we've had models before. We we know we don't want to just decimate species, right? We do. Right. We've done that. Right. Including with beavers. Yeah. Right. Um. But but maybe we could expand on that. Why? Yeah, the, you know the why of should we co should we want to coexist? Sure, than, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are all, there are all kinds of, uh, of of incredibly important reasons that we should coexist. But you know, to me, I mean, especially especially in the West, you know, climate change is a, is a, a fantastic and very important rationale for living with beavers. Uh, you know, again, we know so we know that all over the West, right, we're losing we're losing our snowpack, right, as as the as the climate warms. You know, that precipitation is falling as rain rather than snow. When it falls as snow, you know, it's staying on the landscape longer and it's sort of gradually uh, melting throughout the summer and fall. It's, it's providing that nice sort of time release trickle um, that, that keeps our, our, our streams and irrigation ditches hydrated uh, into the hot season. But when it falls as, as rain in the winter, instead, it just runs off the landscape and it's essentially lost to, to productive use right away. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's this, I mean, we have to tackle that water storage issue somehow. And, you know, maybe there's this animal that can build, you know, thousands and thousands of reservoirs uh, up in 
the high country and basically capture that water and and uh, you know and and recharge aquifers and and basically you know keep our our landscapes uh, irrigated into the hot season. So I think that that rationale that beavers are potentially this important tool of climate adaptation in in a warming Western world uh, is is a really good uh, motivation for for living with these animals. That brings me to a question I've had in the back of my mind of scale. Yeah. We're, we're, we're obviously not going to get to the scale before humans arrived. Right. What what, what do scientists tell us would be a, a good beaver population? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's one that, uh, that, that differs from, from place to place, you know, it, it's, um, so, so here in, you know, here in Utah, you know, researchers here at, at Utah State basically, you know, modeled um, beaver capacity, you know, where can, where can beavers live in Utah and where are they living already, you know, and, and, and they found, I think, um, that something like, like between 8 and 17 percent of available beaver habitat was being used. So, you know, a very, a very small proportion um, of where we could have these animals actually supports these animals today. Um, so, you know, are we ever going to get back to a hundred percent of of beaver occupancy? No, probably not. And you know, maybe that's not desirable because of the the potential for conflicts. You know, there certainly are places where you know where beavers uh, might be inappropriate, uh, or you know, might cause irresolvable conflicts. Um, but you know, can we get back to maybe twenty five percent or forty percent of of beaver occupancy? Yeah, I think I think that sort of thing is 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 feasible. So I'm not sure that there's a you know a a precise desirable target. Um, but certainly I think there are lots and lots of places all over this state and this country uh, that don't support beavers today that that could and should in the future. Um, places like the Walmart and Logan? Well, tell me about tell me about this. I, I wasn't yeah. aware of this. I've been aware of beavers other places, but apparently there's a beaver, beaver colony yeah, the South Walmart, and I, I think that's a fantastic example of what what we can achieve. So basically, the the story there is that um, right that this, at the South Walmart, um, you know, there's a a wetland adjacent to the parking lot. Uh, that wetland was was colonized by beavers, and uh, you know, city engineers wanted to trap the beavers out for for fear that beavers would you know flood the adjacent road, uh, but. Instead of instead of removing those beavers, you know, researchers here at, at Utah State basically worked with with the city to develop this this kind of uh, series of of management steps, um, including those flow devices that I described earlier. You know, these kind of pond leveling devices that that regulate the height of the of the the beaver impoundment, uh, so that they let the beavers stay put. You know, they took they took measures to uh, sort of mitigate the potential conflicts, and again, let, you know, let the beavers remain in place. And so now you've got this fantastic little pocket of really wonderful urban fish and wildlife habitat, uh, you know, next to a Walmart parking lot mm-hmm. because we figured out ways to live with these animals rather than trapping them out. So I think there's lots of, you know, there's lots of potential to have to have these these uh, these animals in pretty urban spaces. Before we go to break, uh, it brings up a question. I'm going to go down to the, the Walmart and, yeah, and check, see, it out. check it out. So where, where to go and how best to, because beaver is a very attractive animal to, to view and 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 to be around, uh, but you know you don't want to bother them. I guess how how best to I, interact is the bad word. You don't sure, want yeah. to interact, but uh, to view beavers. Yeah, yeah. So so beavers, they're um, 
you know, they're they're what scientists call crepusculars. So they come out at, at dawn and dusk, basically, and they're I mean, they're really nocturnal, but you know, you're not you're not going to see them in the, in the middle of the night. Um, so you know, I would I would I would advise going down to uh, a, a beaver pond uh, right around the, the dusk hour, and uh, you know, and just just uh, waiting for them to emerge to mm. see what see what happens. Mm. Um, and if you know, if you if you stick around and and just uh, remain still and quiet, uh, you know, they're they're pretty inquisitive animals, and sometimes they'll you know, swim right up to you. It's pretty cool. Okay. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to. Uh, we'll get to beaver behavior. I'm fascinated. I mean, we know they build dams. We know they build lodges. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about beaver behavior. There's a uh, photograph in the book. Uh, let me turn to this to get it right here. Um, this is half-tailed Dale, who's awaiting a mate at the uh, Beaver Project's Rodent Love Motel. I want to hear that story when we come back. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you. And Stokes Nature Center Canyon Jams, presenting Swinging Lights September 3rd at 7 p.m. Located at Von Bear Park in Providence. Information at loganature.org slash canyon jams. Stay with us, both sides of the aisle coming up at 10 o'clock. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in December of 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have about 10 minutes left in the conversation. We're talking about e- uh, beavers. I almost said eager there. That's the title of the book. Eager, the surprising secret life of beavers and why they matter. Uh, so I promised Ben Goldfire we get in this last segment into uh, beaver behavior. Uh, maybe a good way to get into that is uh, the, the anthropomorphized view of beavers. We mm-hmm. associate words like eager, like busy. Right. With uh, with beavers. Are, are beavers busy? Are they eager? <laughs> they're definitely, you know, I think that I, th- I think that what they are rather than than busy is they're they're really efficient. Uh, you know, they're these these really, uh, of course, they're these amazing engineers. Um, you know, obviously, they build dams. That's kind of the classic beaver behavior. But they also they're also incredible canal diggers. I think that's something that people don't often give beavers credit for is that, you know, their their canals are in some ways as, as impressive as their 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 dams. And, uh, you know, this when you visit a beaver, a beaver habitat, you know, one of the one of the, the fun things for me is always trying to figure out you know, what they're doing, you know, what is the purpose? Because, you know, you can, I mean, you can have as many as a, a dozen dams in a, a single beaver, beaver complex or even more than that. Um, so, you know, what's, what is this, what's this dam over here doing? What's the point of this canal here? You know, why do they, why do they want to back up water onto this part of the floodplain? You know, they're, they're, they, they're, they're just so complex in their behaviors that it can be, they're, they're a fun animal to uh, visit and interpret, I think. I didn't know about the canals, so the canal systems is part of it. Yeah, exactly. Well. You know, and that and the, and the the point of that is, you know, is is that they. I mean, obviously, so when they're when they're out of water, they're very vulnerable to to bears and cougars and coyotes. Uh, so they, you know, they're they're trying to stay in the water as much as possible. So the point of the canal, of course, is that you know you can dig a canal over to that tasty uh, aspen stand, you know, and then float your your materials back down the canal to your main pond, mm. uh, which is a, another pretty ingenious uh, feature, I think. I've been curious about uh, beaver psychology, the, you know, the, the why of the instincts. You've, you mentioned one, I guess that's prominent one for any animal, which is fear, fear of predators and trying to get protection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but I think I think another, you know, another another big reason that that beavers do why they do is that do what they do why they why they do what they do is you know they're they're almost like like rotational farmers in a lot of ways. You know, they 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 
cut down a, a stand of willow or aspen on, on one side of the pond. And, and meanwhile, you know, they're, they're raising the water table on the other side to basically irrigate their next crop. You know, they're, they're sort of going back and forth uh, within this, this large ecosystem they've engineered, um, you know, between stands of trees that they're cutting down and, and ones that are, are regrowing. So I think that beavers as rotational grazers is a, a pretty cool thing, too. Interesting. So they're attracted to uh, cottonwoods, aspens... Yeah, like willow. A, they they cut them down. Do they eat off of that? What what's the food? They do. Yeah. So they so so beavers actually eat the the cambium, which is the inner layer of bark of a tree. So they'll so they'll you know they'll they'll cut, they'll cut down a, an aspen or cottonwood. They'll you know often sort of chop it up into into sections, uh, and they'll they'll eat the bark off of it. Eat, eat that inner bark layer, and then they'll use those those kind of peeled sticks uh, as construction material. So you know when I said that they're efficient earlier, I think that's pretty cool that their their food source and their and their building materials are are one in the same. Mm. Uh, so the 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 beavers uh, love life here. I want to get into this, uh, <laughs> not being salacious, but uh, they mate for life. What are they? Yeah, exactly. So they so they they made for life. They're they're pretty monogamous. And a typical beaver colony or family is is the the adult mating pair. Uh, the the kits are born in the spring. The the, the newborns, uh, the one year olds, and then the two year olds. And then and then sometime during their second year, those two year olds will disperse out and go look for their own territories, like teenagers heading off to to college. So you'll get you know as many as eight or ten beavers sharing a single a single lodge at, at, in some places. Uh, so when you're doing relocation and trying to build populations, they, they try to have to, you know, it's do things as natural as you can. But, and so this, this caption is, a, you know, it was a cute beaver. They're cute. I think we, we think find them cute, right? I think they're we, pretty cute. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Half-tailed Dale awaits a mate at the Methow Beaver Project's Rodent Love Motel. Right. So what's going on there? So, so, um, so in general, when you when you when you relocate beavers, because they're these very family oriented animals, you want to you want to capture and relocate the entire family together, right? If you if you move a solitary beaver, that beaver is going to go wandering around looking for a mate and probably get eaten by uh, by a cougar. You know, you want to you want to relocate them and then have them immediately settle down and start building. Uh, so. When you when you trap beavers by themselves, which which happens, you know, a lot of the beavers that you're, you know, a lot of the nuisance beavers uh, that you live trap are, are going to be those those two year old sub adult beavers that are sort of, you know, dispersing out looking for their own territory and you know end up in a in an irrigation ditch or something. Um, so when you trap those those solo beavers that don't have a family attached to them, it can be really beneficial to to create kind of compatible beaver pairs to, to operate this this rodent love motel, as, as they uh, they put it up in the Metzow Valley in central Washington, where you're basically, you know, sort of running this sort of beaver Tinder service where, you know, you know you're housing males and females and trying to pair them up and create these little happy, compatible couples that mm. you then relocate. One other little factoid, um, the, the, this fellow you went out with, Drew Reed, he's, does relocations. Uh, he had a kit. That's what we call the mm-hmm. the young, right? Right. Uh, he had a kit, and uh, they were relocating the the mother, or father, I guess. Yeah, one of the parents. The, it's hard. It's one, hard to one, tell. Hard to tell with yeah. beavers. Um, and the quit uh, kits uh, swam away. So right. He dashed down the 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 stream. Uh, only thing he could do, he picked it up by the tail. Right. And then there was some concern you shouldn't pick it up by the tail because you could dislocate the tail. Yeah, I've, I've heard sort of contrary uh, opinions from from various beaver biologists about that, about whether tail dislocation is a real thing. But, you know, but in general, I would say don't hold beavers by the tail. I think that's okay. a good rule of thumb. All right. Probably don't even go out and 
pick him up. Right? Yeah, just just watch him just from, watch a safe, them. from a safe just distance. I think is good. I want to talk uh, briefly. Just have about three minutes left. I want to talk about the wolves. You you have a chapter in the book about Yellowstone and how you were so affected, like thousands of others were, by a, a key uh, documentary right. about reintroduction of the wolves and how wolves. Uh, had helped to save repairing areas and streams. Right. So tell me briefly about that. And and then you said that that's that's an incomplete story. Then you go on to talk about beavers. Absolutely, yeah. So so you know so we all we all kind of know the wolf story, right? The story behind Yellowstone wolves is that you know is that when when wolves were were extirpated from Yellowstone, you know the elk the elk population exploded and they they basically grazed all of the willow, aspen, and cottonwood in the park and and sort of caused streams to unravel, just like you see on you know on on cattle grazing allotments. And then when the when the wolves came back, you know they basically you thinned the elk herds and chased the elk out of those valley bottoms and, and let the vegetation regrow. Uh, and, you know, I think that, that uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of a lot of scientific debate about, you know, the extent to which that's that's happening. But I think that, you know, one thing that, that all of the debates or many of the debates tend to miss is just how important beavers are in the, in, in that system. You know, that, that when when the wolves were gone and the elk exploded, uh, beavers were, were one of the, the primary casualties, uh, you know, because, of course, they basically got outcompeted for that riparian vegetation by, by these larger uh, ungulate browsers. Uh, and as wolves have, have recovered and, and uh, you know, that grazing pressure has diminished a little bit, you know, beavers have been able to come back into Yellowstone to some extent, uh, and and engineer some of these habitats. You know, when you it's amazing. You read about what Yellowstone used to look like, and you know, half of the northern part of the park was basically underwater thanks to beavers. Uh, it was a completely different landscape, and uh, you know, and, and wolves and beavers are now working together uh, in some in some ways to bring back that former wet ecosystem. Just a minute left. Uh, you talked to uh, Mary O'Brien down in southern Utah. Right. I think we think of beavers as being in wet, wetter areas like Cache Valley, if we think yeah. of Utah. But uh, Moab area, you know, drier, more more arid. Mm-hmm. Beavers are in those places too. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and, and again, I think I think that a, a lot of the places that we consider arid today were were actually, um, you know, substantially substantially wetter thanks to beavers. And there, you know, Mary and I visited uh, Mill Creek down in, in Moab, which is which is you know this kind of this very uh, dry looking slot canyon, basically that you know that had a, a dozen beaver dams in it. Um, so it's it's pretty cool to see these animals flourishing in this essentially desert environment. What's your uh, thirty-second takeaway? That uh, <laughs> we spent the hours on beavers. Yeah, uh, you wrote a whole book on beavers. You're going to give a presentation uh, today. What? Uh, what's your elevator pitch? Yeah, you know, I think I think that that as as you said earlier, you know, we we humans are sort of these fanatical micromanagers, right? We 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 you know we love to sort of rule the world in this, you know, in this godlike way. Um, but in the case of beavers, you know, there's this other animal that can, that can, that shapes landscapes in, in uh, ways, that, in the same ways that we do. And, and by letting that animal do what it does, you know, we can actually achieve all of these ecological benefits, you know, as, as scientists here at Utah State are fond of saying, let the rodent do the work, you know, get out of the way and, and let beavers help us because they want to. That's a good place to end the program. The book is Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben Goldfarb, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here. Look up to the sky in early twilight. Spot the beautiful crescent moon. And let's take the Skywatcher spaceship way out to rendezvous with JPL and NASA's spacecraft called Osiris Rex. 
Remember us talking about that? Osiris Rex, a great name for a spaceship and, and a dinosaur, probably. Osiris Rex launched in 2016 and has been on a long journey that took it out to a briquette-looking space rock called Bennu. Osiris orbited and then landed and scooped up samples of the asteroid and continued to orbit and study from above. Utah State University Space Dynamics Lab designed the focal point arrays, including three cameras and detectors. These helped the craft to navigate, view in high resolution, and map Bennu. Congratulations! And now Osiris Rex has fired its thrusters and is heading back to Earth. It's a long journey home. It'll cover about 1.4 billion miles. Osiris Rex must circle the sun twice to get from Bennu to Earth. Wow! When it arrives in 2023, our cosmic traveler will drop off the samples, ironically, in the Utah desert of all places, and then probably head out for another near-Earth asteroid expedition. Check out the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook page for a picture of Bennu and all sources for this segment. As many cultures, one sky, the Hadza people of Eastern Africa and Tanzania have lived in Tanzania longer than any group has lived anywhere. They were here when the Egyptians built the pyramids. They had already been on the same stretch of land for 50,000 years, living off the land. To the Hadza, fire forged their predecessors into the people they are now, using fire for, of course, warmth, roasting roots and tubers, and roasting meat from their hunts. In celebration, the Hadza teach the children in the evening sounds to be aware of, animal sounds. The fire inspires singing and dancing around the fire. When they look to the night sky, of course they see mysterious and mythical figures. You have to wonder what the night sky looked like to them thousands of years ago. Swirly Corona Borealis, the Orion Nebula, they're still here for us to travel back in time and join the Hadza, the Incas, and the Fremont in wonder and unity. Novas, comets, and shooting stars that lit up their world still light up ours. For the Hadza, mythological figures are believed to take part in arranging the world. Yushoko is a solar figure. Hain is a lunar figure. May the Hadza continue to thrive in eastern Africa near the Rift Valley and Serengeti Plateau. Stay tuned for more on the Hadza star myths, and next week we'll take a look at UFOs. So look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with transmitter stations statewide and streaming live. Control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Stokes Nature Center Writers in the Woods, presented with a partnership with UPR and the Logan Library. A conversation with Pam Houston, author of Deep Creek, Thursday, September 16th at 7 p.m., 7 o'clock. Information at loganature.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.